The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I want to take you back to the good old, actually dark old days of 2008, right in the middle of the global financial crisis. Back then, I worked in Auckland and used to walk the streets of Ponsonby. And to get there, I had to go past this really big hole in the ground. It was enormous. It was over a hectare just behind Ponsonby Road. And we used to call it the Soho because it was where the Soho Square apartment and office development was going to be built. Back in 2005, a developer there called Lane Kells had bought this chunk of land, it was the old QYC vinegar factory, for $12 million. And his plan was to build $250 million worth of apartments and offices on that block. So he bought it for $12 million and he needed to borrow about $100 million to really get things cranking, fire up the architects and the people who get the consents and the designers and the marketers so that... Over time, over two or three years, he would be able to get some money in as deposits on these apartments and various other things. And then at the end of the process of building this project over two or three years, the loans he'd taken out from property financiers up to $100 million, he would be able to repay in one big chunk. Because remember, property developers tend to borrow money. They don't pay interest during the time because they don't have a lot of income coming in. And then at the end of that two and a half, three years, then they repay the whole chunk of money with interest attached. So it can blow out pretty quickly. And that's all fine. Let's say there's a delay with the consents or you couldn't quite sell as many as you'd hoped. You just have to hope that the property financier will pay you the money. But come 2008, all of those appetites to lend had dried up. It was a global financial crisis. Everyone was nervous. And it felt like we were on the edge of a bust. And we were. And our entire property development, apartment building, big commercial building sector ground to a halt. There was a bust. And that hole in the ground in Ponsonby became a symbol of our boom-bust property development, apartment development market. I used to walk past it every day in 2008 and look into the Soho. The reason being, at the time, I was reporting a lot on the collapse of finance companies because back in 2005, pretty much the only way property developers could get hold of the money to start this process of doing the designing, getting the consents, digging the holes, putting in the reinforcing, all of that sort of thing. You had to borrow money from a mezzanine financier, a second-tier lender, someone who was willing to probably charge you 10 15 20% for those two or three years to get things going. There weren't lots of pools of money to do that. Banks typically didn't want to touch you with a barge pole on the property development side. They may have been happy to lend you money to buy the land, but property development is seen as a risky game. In fact, it's a bit like that childhood game we used to play, Pass the Parcel, where the music would go and then you had to pass the parcel around. And when the music stopped, if you were stuck holding the parcel, you were in trouble. And so, 
our property development sector has built this culture of boom and bust, of not wanting to be the one holding the parcel. Because by 2008, Strategic Finance and Fortress had lost that $100 million and Lane Cowles was declared bankrupt. And he didn't have many assets on hand. In fact, when the liquidators went through the companies involved, the only thing they could find was a coffee machine. Not a very fancy one, actually, that he'd paid $3,500 for in 2008. They really cost a lot more back then. So this was an example of what a bust looks like. Now, why am I talking about this? You know, we're 10, 15 years on from the global financial crisis. Certainly, we're not on any bust right now, and no one's really talking about a bust. But why does it matter? Because New Zealand has a massive problem. We need to build lots of these medium-density apartments close to the centre of town. They're complicated. They're expensive. They take a lot of time. They're seen as risky by the property development and financing sector. And yet, that's exactly what we need to solve our housing affordability and our climate change crisis. We need people living in smaller homes that are more affordable, closer to work and play and school. And we need people to get into them real fast. They need to be built fast and they need to be built affordably. And at the moment, it's very expensive to build these things. It's difficult to get the finance using the existing models. And everyone in the sector still fears the bust. No one wants to employ anyone for a long time. You're always looking for contractors. And over time, this has bred a lack of trust in the process. Many contractors don't really trust their lead contractors. A lot of developers don't really trust the building developers. There's been so many companies that have gone bust over the last decade. So there's a lack of trust in the sector. But we need to break through. How do we make sure we get lots of these medium-density houses built affordably and quickly? And we need to do it very quickly in these big cities like Auckland. But there is hope on the horizon and something that's really changed since 2005. Back then, banks didn't lend to property developers. Often they needed these finance companies like Strategic Finance and Bridge Corp and Hanover, and they all went bust because they were left holding the baby when the music stopped, all those holes in the ground. The question is, where are those developers going to get their money from now? Well, the thing that's changed since 2005 is we now have this enormous pension and KiwiSaver fund sector. Back then, there would have been less than $50 billion involved, and most of it was invested in the stock market and overseas in shares. Now, we have $250 billion in the KiwiSaver and funds management sector in New Zealand. They've got money coming out their ears. Everyone's got their automatic payments set up. That money keeps going in month after month after month. And these pension funds are looking for long-term investments with regular returns that even though it might not look like a big number in the long run, 2 3 4%, It is regular, it is not volatile, and that is what the pension fund managers want. And overseas, these pension fund managers are big investors in build-to-rent apartment developments, and they can hold on to them for a long time and create these rental agreements which are very long-term, unlike in New Zealand where so many people are in private rentals where the owner buys and flicks, buys and flicks, kicks you out after 18 months, you have to move your kids from school to school, the owner isn't actually interested in the experience of you as a renter. They're only interested in the buy and flick, the holding for capital gain, the actual owning of a house as a place to live. 
they're not so interested. And there's, of course, a shortage, so that means they can afford to bump you out and there'll always be someone at the end of the queue to rent, even if the quality isn't very high. I know this coming from Wellington. And what it means is that we have a badly structured rental market and a badly arranged financial market and a building and construction sector which is very inefficient, fractured and has a whole lack of trust, which means it's really, really expensive to build these sorts of apartment developments. But there is some hope on the horizon, and I saw an interesting piece of news in the last couple of weeks which suggests a couple of quite big players may have found a model to break through this logjam. Simplicity, you might have heard of, is the KiwiSaver fund run and set up by Sam Stubbs and his team there. They're now one of the biggest uh, KiwiSaver funds. They're a default provider and a non-profit, and they are really interested in finding investment opportunities in New Zealand which give solid long-term returns. They're interested in owning assets not for a few years but for decades, possibly a hundred years. And that's unusual in New Zealand. We're often quite keen on the buy and the flick. In New Zealand we have quite short-term investment horizons. We worry about the booms and the busts. No one wants to be caught holding the parcel. And so they are the long-term source of capital. And then on the other side we have NZ Living run by Shane and Anna Brearley, who've been building apartments and townhouses in and around Auckland and other places for a long time and doing it increasingly efficiently. And the reason they're doing it is they've broken away from this very much winner-takes-all, winners and losers, litigation between contractors and developers and owners, a lack of trust in the system, very inefficient process of bringing in contractors who you haven't worked with before, who maybe they don't trust you, you don't trust them, not a very good working environment. They have instead found contractors that they like and that have delivered for them, and they don't tender things out, and they have built a machine using Kaizen principles, the sort of Toyota manufacturing process, to reduce the cost per square metre by at least 30% over the last decade. Now, that seems extraordinary at a time when we hear that building materials and the cost of employing people and delays and consenting and everything is making it incredibly expensive. This, for me, is the really interesting point out of an interview that I had with Sam Stubbs and with Shane Brearley from Simplicity and NZ Living. They say there are no constraints on building huge numbers of apartments. They've announced they plan to build a 1,000 new dwellings and for Simplicity to build a management company that rents out these dwellings for decades, holds on to them, gets that regular long-term return, strips out a lot of the margins and the high lending costs and the various fees and the extra costs that get plugged in along the way as people try to get as much as they can before the market goes bust. But if you're holding on to something for 100 years, you don't care whether it goes bust every four or five years. You're still going to get your money. The rent will always be paid, and you have got your long-term return. NZ Living, for its side of the deal, is sure that it will have lots of houses to build, not just for the next two or three years until the next bust, but for decades to come. The contractors will know. They're not going to get thrown out and locked out from the building site and lose their tools if there's a bust because they're just going to keep building every year for decades to come. That's this week in When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey with a podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank.
Well, welcome now to Win the Facts Change to Sam Stubbs from Simplicity and Shane Brealy from NZ Living. Great to see you both in the Good construction day. office box. And you had your white hats on there earlier. It was very impressive. Tell us what your plans are for building lots of houses and how you can do it in a way perhaps that others can't. Yeah, sure. So, look, um, Shane and I got together actually on a building site. We were introduced by Stephen Tyndall. Um, and uh, we were looking at saying, look, how can we make money and do good? Because we like doing that as simplicity. And we said, look, there's this crazy housing crisis here, and yet people are paying rents. And so, you know, is it possible to make a fair return and provide affordable housing? And so uh, we struggled and struggled and struggled with it. The construction industry is kind of like the finance industry. It's a philo pastry of fees, right? So, and then we stumbled across Shane, and we started talking, and it was, yeah, it was about 18 months ago, mm-hmm. right? And um, what we worked out was that the money that we can provide and the construction capacity that NZ Living can provide is actually a very powerful combination. So um, our KiwiSaver members and investment fund members will be providing the money and it'll be about between 25 and 5% of our allocations eventually. But that's still a substantial amount of money. It's billions of dollars and or should be billions of dollars. And then, But the actual, you know... It's all very well having the money, but you've got to build the product right, and that, that's, that's the tough bit. So I'm going to hand over to Shane, who actually does the work. I do the talk, and he does the, the walking. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, Shane, how, how can you build these houses apparently cheaper than others? Well, I've been in the game about 35 years now from uh, graduating out of Canterbury University, and I've been in that pyramid contracting spiral, uh, lowest price tender game, um, but I was very fortunate about three or four years into my career to get the opportunity while working for Lend Lease um, to do a lot of um, analysis of pr- um, production systems, uh, the likes of the Toyota Way, lean construction techniques, continuous improvement, Kaizen and all of that. But I've never been in a position to be able to put into practice all of the common sense and good sound theory because there's always been a need to win enough work to keep your workforce engaged, and that invariably means tendering at certain points, and the rest cascades into a um, into a, just a jungle of waste and confusion and waiting and overpricing and under-delivery and poor outcomes. So uh, having set up my own construction company called NZ Strong about 15 years ago, ran that for 10 years, and we got very efficient, but we were still only one part of the equation. We were the builder part not the design consultant or the client or the funder. So took a year or two out, early 50s, and then decided I'll have another go. I reckon there's a lot of waste in this industry. So I'm going to go back and try to answer the question that will burn in my mind in my 70s in in my rocking chair. And that is, what is the percentage of waste in our construction industry? And what if you were the client and the builder and the subby and you had a lot of own equity? Uh, and I thought the answer was going to be about 7 maybe 8% wastage. We were going to smash it. First project, we were 30% below what the QSs were telling us, and we're now sitting 35 to 40%. And then the last little piece of the puzzle, which um, is where Simplicity uh, QSaver comes along, is how do we take that last bit, the bank funding out of your project, to get rid of the last bit of waste, hence the, uh, the combination. 
So could you unpack for us, you know, that 30% number, that's a really big, big number. What what goes into that, um, Shane? Where does the bank insert its costs? Where does the subbies insert their costs? You know, why 30%? That sounds huge. Um, if I had to pick a word to define it, I would say it is, well, two words, waiting and opportunism. And if you look at any construction site at any time, you can be a grocer, a fisherman, a, a whatever line of work. Look at a construction site and tell me how many people are actually building that project and how many are waiting, standing, talking, chatting, looking for an instruction, looking for approval, waiting for a drawing. And all of that time still has to be paid for, which brings me to the second word, opportunism. If you're a quantity surveyor, pricing as a subcontractor or a building contractor, you're only guessing how much waiting you're going to have to do in delivery of your responsibilities and your trade or that construction project. And so you invariably put on as much contingency as you think you can get away with, whether you spend it or not. So you drop those two things out and you just build it. Michael Schumacher, uh, his favourite thing was go-kart racing rather than Formula One because it was pure racing. And so what we're doing here is we are pure building. So, Sam, could you tell us from the financing side, you know, how mm. y- you're being more efficient? Because the normal yeah. practice in New Zealand is that a developer maybe gets hold of some land, maybe gets hold of some mezzanine finance, whatever that means, yeah. Yeah. Po- possibly gets it from a bank, although it seems to be quite hard to do that these days, gets yeah. charged a very large interest rate, hopes to hell there aren't any huge delays with consenting and various other things, yeah. hopes to hell that they can line up the contractors in the right place, uh, hopes to hell that they can get some pre-sales, and then if everything lines up, it might actually happen. Um, but there's quite a bit of cost. Can you give us a sense of how you're trying to disestablish that or strip that out? So there's two roles we have. One is the funder and then the other one is the owner, right? So as the owner, you think about what do you want to own? Well, we want to own 100-year buildings, 100-year design life. So we intend to own these for 100 years and rent them affordably on very long-term rental contracts. So we're going to own them for 100 years. They've got to be built really well. So actually, actually, it's not actually about saving costs. It's about building something to last But if you think about as an owner, what are we paying for? Well, there's no development margin, there's no financing margin, there's no unit titling costs, there's no sales costs. You add all of that up and then you put efficient construction on top and you actually have a much lower cost um, in product as long as you're prepared to vertically integrate, own the whole process and take a very long-term view. So as an owner, that's our view, that we will end up actually owning a whole lot of homes that are incredibly high quality but also incredibly good value. And, you know, people say, look, you can't do that, no one's done it. Well, look, we've done it in the finance industry with simplicity. It's actually remarkably the same with NZ Living. You can do things much cheaper. But then you think about it as a financer, right? So what, why would you do this? And here's the trick. Here's a secret source from the Kiwi Seven point of view. Most people build, develop and sell homes with a five-year view at most. Right? Many of them just want to develop it and sell it and make a margin. So they start thinking about it as a property asset and they want property type margins for all that risk. Right? First of all, is we're de risking it by vertically owning it, the whole thing. And then if you think about it as we don't think about this, these properties we're building here as properties, we think about them as a fixed interest substitute. So rather than stick the money in the bank and get 1% return, if we can rent them out to people and get two or three, two or three times, over 100 years, that's a fantastic investment. For those of you who are financially inclined, it's, it's, but like it's a perpetual 
and floating rate inflation adjusted bond. The instrument doesn't exist in the New Zealand market. You have to create it by creating long-term rental streams. But if you do that, then from the investing point of view, it's a fantastic investment because it's a substitute for fixed interest. Because whenever I've spoken to um, pension fund managers, you know, even sovereign wealth fund managers who've looked at the New Zealand market to do build to rent like this, they've gone, gee, the land prices are so expensive, the construction's yeah. so expensive. At the end of the yeah. day, I might get a yield of uh, 1% to 2%. I don't have yeah. the tax advantages that a, a homeowner in particular has to be able to effectively yeah. claim the uh, interest costs off the tax or um, avoid the capital gains tax. I'm a pension fund. I always have to report what my uh, portfolio has done every year and I have to pay tax on it. It is just not possible. You know, and I totally get that. If, if all you've got to offer is a checkbook and you say I want to invest in it, then you're buying someone else's completed house and everyone's made a margin on it all the way through, right? So it's much more expensive. So to give an idea, you know, Kaingora uh, type quality houses or normal Kiwi houses about 4,200 a square metre. Yep. And, and NZ Living is currently building at about 2,400 per square metre, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just the build cost. Then you add on the financing costs, the sales, all this palaver, right? It makes houses incredibly expensive in New Zealand. But if you take away all those costs and you say, okay, we're going to build, own, develop it and run it, that means all that margin's gone. And then if you think about the return you would make by charging an affordable rent, it doesn't even have to be a market rent. It could be, it could be a below market rent. You're still making a higher return than you will by being an arm's length buyer coming in and just buying whatever's for sale at the moment because whatever's for sale now reflects all of those costs, yeah? So it's just, it's vertical integration. That's basically what it is, and it's doing it in scale as well. So you get a very repeatable product. What we're doing here is building a Toyota. We're not building a Ferrari, but every house in New Zealand is built as if it was a Ferrari. It actually runs like a, Many of them run like junkers, right? But they're built like Ferraris, almost like custom-built, small-scale. We're building Toyotas. So tell us, what could you rent it out for as an affordable rent, given that your cost yeah. of production, if you like, is uh, you know yeah. half almost? Yeah, so we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors to make them a fair long-term return, right? So there's always a trade-off between the amount you charge and the length of the lease that you give. Ideally... The most important thing people will value is security in the lease, right? They can be there forever. In Europe, houses, um, some houses have been rented by generations of families, right? They, they treat it like their house. So if you have security tenure, that's important. And then, of course, what we want to do is, is, is inflation adjusts the rent. So we're not trying to screw you every single time, but you're a long lease and you say this is very predictable. And so we're not trying to maximise short-term returns, we're trying to maximise long-term returns. Inevitably, there's a bit of give and take there, right? You give a long-term lease, you give it at a price that's genuinely affordable, and I don't know whether that's market or below market, whatever it is at the time, there will be a sweet spot where you've got people who say, we really want to live here for the long-term because it's actually better than buying our own home because it's as secure, as safe and as high quality, but cheaper for them. We'll be back after the break with Sam and Shane talking about the stack of property development, how you go from a bare piece of land right through until the house is ready to be occupied, and more importantly, the dwelling. It's not an easy task. We unpack it after the break. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. 
Here's KiwiBank's chief economist, Jared Kerr, with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 2526. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Shane, I wondered if we could uh, start to unpack this um, whole property development stack. I'm talking a bit like <laughs> a, um, a software developer, but there is a stack, which in a way you are uh, disestablishing here. And in New Zealand, my feeling, understanding after watching this stack for a long time is that the real money in the stack is owning the land and making the tax-free capital gain on the land. You might develop it, but actually because of all these costs, that can be quite a risky business. Could you give us a sense of uh, how you're getting around these incredibly high land costs and what is it about the subcontracting game that that means that so many people are sort of standing around? Yeah, well, the land is these second or third largest cost component, but it sits well behind the construction component. Construction is typically around 50%, 50 to 60% of your total costs. Land somewhere between 15 maybe 20%, depending on the size and the, the typology you're putting on it. So it's not a deal breaker. Um, and there is ample land, particularly in brownfield locations throughout Auckland. Um, we had our announcement last Thursday, so we aren't a week in, and we must have sites before us capable of putting somewhere between one and one and a half thousand houses and by the end of next week i expect that number will be two to three thousand and the price of it you know if you're paying um 10 percent more than you'd like to on 20 percent of your total costs that's only two percent whereas in construction you know that's a 50 percent part of the pie and if you're 30 or 40 percent more efficient in that area 
it sort of covers most other issues that you might be challenged with. So we would rather pay up for high-quality land burning. We actually pay... Right locations. If, if it's in the, it's the location that will last 100 years, right? Close to supermarkets, train stations, parks, all that sort of stuff, yeah. And uh, this is sort of unusual because I'm hearing whenever I speak to developers and politicians and mayors and councillors, uh, there's no land. You know, the, the reason we have this housing crisis in New Zealand, in fact, the Reserve Bank Governor came out in a speech a couple of weeks ago and said, well, the reason for this is a lack of land supply from the councils and the government. You, sounds like you're saying this isn't really the issue, even in Auckland where you do all your work. Shane? Well, you know, there, there are big parts of Auckland that were built um, over 100 years ago and most mostly approaching, you know, sort of 80 to 100 years, they, aren't, they weren't built to last forever. And those brownfield locations are now ripe for more intensity. I think it's, it's not a lack of land. It's a lack of imagination and a lack of ability to work out a great solution. And I know you've spoken to Mark Todd from Ockham on a similar subject and he'd agree with me, you know, full-hearted. So no, there's no lack of land. I think I think Bernard, if you want everybody to live in their own standalone home in, in Auckland, yeah, there's a problem. In New Zealand, there's a problem with land in the big cities. But if you want if people are prepared to live in apartments and townhouses, I mean, my personal view is the issue is not land. The issue is just lack of money and imagination to develop it. So um, let's say, for example, we really did have an imagination which said, you know, we need to build a couple of hundred thousand of these type of dwellings in the next 10, 20 years, not just in Auckland, but in some of the other big cities. What are the constraints? Because my feeling looking around at the capital pools in New Zealand, you know, there's a couple of hundred billion dollars worth of pension funds. There's $400 billion in term deposit accounts. We actually don't have a shortage of money. So what are the constraints to those sorts of ambitions? Shane, maybe. Sorry, I can't think of one. How about the building materials costs? I'm told that these building materials costs are always going through no. the roof. Well, I've just done a, um, an exercise uh, to uh, gave a presentation uh, to a bunch of people and um, I did a bit of homework. So for 100 homes we worked out what the inflationary impact was from freight, which is doubled in cost when you contain it from overseas, and the cost of construction materials. And some of them have gone up from between 20 and 50%. Steel mesh, for example, is around 50 And so to build a 100-home project, we would need 32 containers of offshore goods to complete that. That's, say, a $10,000 per uh, container premium now, that's $320,000. You take all of the um, construction material cost increases over that same 100 uh, home project, and that was about $850,000. The total construction cost of those homes was $24 million. So, that, so the impact of increased freight and construction materials uh, prices going rampant is 1.5% plus 3.5% is 5%, and that's over a year, and that's what you'd normally expect anyway. So, as I say, I I think that what you're hearing is um, a combination of hype and opportunism, and the opportunism is clients and developers that perhaps aren't the client of of first choice are having people pricing to them enjoying this little phase. Because there is quite a short-termist thinking in the entire industry that I've always struggle to understand. You're right, you're building an asset that should last 100 years plus, yet there is this constant refrain that no one wants to be left holding the bag or the baby when suddenly there's a bust in the market. So you don't want to employ anyone long term. You don't want to commit yourself to building projects 
that are going to keep going year in, year out for 10, 20 years because there's going to be a bust. There's always a bust. And you don't want to be left holding the bag when the music stops. How does your model get around that problem? Yeah. Well, look, if you have that subscale short-termism and everything bespoke, you absolutely what you get. And so it's funny when you look at the construction industry, we've been looking at it for about 18 months now, and we laugh at the lack of efficiency in it generally. Just everywhere, man. It's just it's just crazy waste. Because that suits all the players. They all make enough money, mm-hmm. you know. So I think you need, first of all, you need a very long-term perspective. You need to have a lot of money, and you have to have it more vertically integrated. You've got to be prepared to control and own things rather than get into this eternal finger-pointing that goes on in the industry, blaming somebody else, you know. And also blaming someone else for the excessive costs. It's actually not one thing. There's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that solves the problem. There's a whole lot of problems, and all of them, if you actually approach them sensibly and with long-term with a scale approach, you know, I mean, so, for example, we hope to be building a 1,000 homes a year within five years, right? That'll make us a major constructor in New Zealand. You would normally think, oh, that's really scary and that's risky and stuff, but it's absolutely not because if you're building them a lot cheaper and they're, they're really sturdy and you can afford to hold on to them and rent them out because they're so rentable, You've got that cash flow, which actually allows you to go through whatever spikes and dips there are in the market. And if you're always the lowest cost producer, as we intend to be, you're always going to have a competitive advantage. It's just, is your competitive advantage this much or this much? It depends on where the market moves, right? So you've got to think long-term in in scale. I'm told every day by politicians and developers and mayors and everything, there's no way you can build these houses because we just don't have the staff. We can't import everyone, so that's that's the problem. That's why we can't do it. But w- what are you saying about the labour restrictions? It's, it's not so much a, um, a quantity issue, it's a productivity issue. So we've got one person now doing what we used to have four people doing, and in the rest of the market, it probably takes eight people to do. Our labour costs... And therefore, our labour number have plummeted as we've innovated and become more productive. So it's, it's a lack of productivity. That means you swamp sites with all sorts of people waiting. Um, our, our first sites um, had probably 100% more labour than they have today. So we'd have a concrete and carpentry gang building 86 homes and it would be a gang of 130. Today, we've got a gang of about... 40, 45, building 129 apartments where we stand today in uh, Northcote. So how does that work? Because um, does that mean you have your own employees and you guarantee to keep them? Or do you have dedicated subcontractors who only work for you or what? Yeah, exactly that. We never tender uh, anything. We negotiate with mature parties. We don't hold bonds. We don't hold retentions. We work together like you know any good relationship should. And why would you do business with somebody you didn't trust and have to hold retentions or have bonds with? Um, So we've used predominantly one subcontractor and supplier per trade, and there are about 32 of those in a typical um, medium-density project. And we've just branched into our second uh, subcontractor on about five trades because they were starting to um, get a bit stretched. But for simplicity, even when we get to that 1,000 a year, we'll probably only need two or three subcontractors per trade, and there must be 200 out there per trade. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing that we'll probably get first choice on the parties that we want because we're such low risk, predictable, enjoyable. You know, they're, they're very pleasant sites to work on when you're working collaboratively. 
get all that hostility that is typical of the market out of your day, far more pleasant to work in. You know, the, there's three magic words there, Bernard. We trust you. You know, and it's, it's amazing what you get out of somebody when you trust them. So this industry is so built on mistrust and, and margin shaving and litigation and chipping each other. It's just... It's rubbish. And just to, to finally uh, wrap up, um, uh, Sam, you're a KiwiSaver fund manager. Uh, um, yeah. You really understand how to bring on board customers online and manage funds. But in this game, you're getting into the business of managing accommodation and all of yeah. that. Uh, yeah. How much of an issue is that going to be for you to scale up and get into this, what seems to be a whole new area? Yeah, look, it'll be a challenge, but as with everything simplicity, there's never anything new, Bernard. It's just new to New Zealand. So there are heaps of pension funds like ourselves and cooperatives who own very large build-to-rent projects overseas that they rent long-term credit communities. So there's a lot of acquired wisdom. Now we've got to acquire it, bring it over to New Zealand. And for a bunch of New Zealanders, this is going to be new. But you know what? It's like the relationship we've had with them in simplicity. If we say, here's trust, here's transparency, is a whole new way of operating... And, and, you know, because I think that's the thing with the rental thing too, right? It's such an adversarial relationship and it's such a short-term relationship. That's rubbish. It's not how people want to live. It's not also how landlords want to operate their businesses either. It's just built up that way out of habit. It doesn't have to be that way. Thank you very much to Sam Stubbs and to Shane Brearley. I better let you back to building some houses. I can certainly hear in the background the, the beeping. I really appreciate right. your time. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.